this is Samantha, and I am the Education Director at the AANS. And there are three new things that you should know about for the upcoming AANS annual meeting. The first is the new Problems and Solutions sessions. This is where cases will be discussed where hardware and hardware has failed and what to do next. Next, um, we heard from you that keeping up from Keeping up with all the scientific research and updates throughout the years is a challenge. So we have curated the most relevant and practical uh, JNS articles, and those will be shared with you in each of our scientific sessions. In these sessions, we'll also share updates that are relevant from ancillary fields, because we know you can't go to every single meeting all the time. And first, for our first AANS, we are bringing in neurosurgical patients so you can hear directly from them what their experience is like as a patient and how it can be improved at your home institution. We look forward to seeing you in Philly. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, delighted to do another in-person interview, which you know we always prefer. I'm very happy to sit down with Dr. Sandy Lamb, the Division Chief of Neurosurgery at Lurie Children's Hospital, where I am currently rotating here in Chicago. Dr. Lamb trained at UCLA, did her pediatrics fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, recently came to Lurie Hospital here in Chicago uh, as the Division Chief has stated. Dr. Lamb, overjoyed to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, besides my paltry recitation of where you trained, etc., for those of our listeners who haven't had the privilege to meet you, maybe if you want to introduce yourself a bit more thoroughly. Thanks. Uh, I'm Sandy Lamb. I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon. I trained at UCLA and did my fellowship at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh uh, with the University of Pittsburgh. My first job was at the University of Chicago for a few years, and then I went to work at Texas Children's Hospital and was on faculty at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. After about eight years, I was recruited here to Lurie Children's Hospital, and I'm a professor and vice chair at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in the Department of Neurosurgery. So I've been all around but I've also not gone very far in life because I actually went to medical school right here at Northwestern University. So I ended up two blocks away from where I started in medical school, uh, but now as a professor in neurosurgery. It's funny the way the world works. Yeah, the circle closes. I was, uh, before coming here on this rotation, I was looking forward to working with you because uh, Dr. Rick Fessler is a big fan of yours and spoke very highly of you. So he had me looking forward to come uh, here on the rotation and work with you. And, you know, uh, just last week, we, we had our first chance to operate together on a really interesting case. And while we were uh, operating, we were talking about other work you had done and our experiences. And you brought up something that sounded really interesting to me and, and very fulfilling. You talked about some mission work, some educational and, and surgical work you do in Africa over the uh, past years and how that's starting to transition back more towards an in-person visits and in-person trips now that the COVID pandemic is slowing down. And, and that's what I wanted to talk with you today about is kind of getting back out there into the world now that the restrictions are being lifted and we can go visit places again, both 
for pleasure and fun trips, but also for professional trips like that. So why don't you to kind of set the stage, talk about the places you've been and, and some of the work you've done on those charitable missions. Thanks for that question. Um, it That is a very big topic. Yeah. Um, it's something that I feel very privileged and grateful to have found within pediatric neurosurgery. I think global neurosurgery is of interest to many people now, especially in the medical student and resident generation. The idea of being a global citizen and of social responsibility beyond one's own practice and one's own career locally is, is quite a big topic. And I think looking globally and looking overseas for opportunities for engagement is something that people ask about a lot. I did not set out to have this be a part of my career. It was actually serendipity. I was climbing Mount Kilimanjaro after my fellowship. And somebody said, you know, you'd really get along with Leland Albright. And he is working in Kenya right now. So, since he wrote the textbook on pediatric neurosurgery, I thought, well, I should really reach out. I'm going to email him and see what he says, since I'll only be an hour's flight away. Yeah. So, um, so I did. And uh, after some back and forth, uh, he agreed to let me visit him in Kajabi, Kenya after I climbed Kilimanjaro and went on safari and did all the things that I set out to do after fellowship. And I worked with him for a week in Kajabi, Kenya, where he was developing pediatric neurosurgery in East Africa. And he had set out to do this in semi-retirement with his wife, Susan Furson, who is a pediatric neurosurgery nurse practitioner. And he also committed to training the neurosurgery residents who were having their training in Nairobi and also training uh, training people to do pediatric neurosurgery. So he committed to training one fellow per year who wanted to stay in Africa to serve the children and do pediatric neurosurgery in Africa. So that's how I met him because I was on vacation, essentially, <laughs> and um, a series of things happened uh, where I ended my week with promising <clears throat> Leland that I would go back every year. Mm. I don't know if any of you have met Leland Albright. I bet many of you listeners have. You don't say no to Dr. Albright. <laughs> so um, so I did. Uh, I, I went back every year. Um, it has been 12 years since I first uh, went to Kajabe, and I've gone for uh, 10 years of those 12, uh, skipping the COVID years, to um, uh, Kenya and Uganda. The relationships I've built with the people that I have helped train and the people that I have worked with as colleagues in neurosurgery have been really important to me. They have reminded me why I'm in this field and they remind me why I do pediatric neurosurgery. It is not just a job. It's not just a paycheck. It's truly a privilege to be able to take care of kids 
and also to be able to be part of this global community to think about knowledge transfer and skill transfer to people who really want to learn, who want to do better, who want to be curious about how to take care of people and have good outcomes. Yeah. And learning to be context specific, location specific and resource specific in how one practices neurosurgery and medicine and to be respectful of cultures and people is something that I think is a very valuable lesson for myself and for everybody that I've encountered working there and people who have come with me from the U.S. to those settings. Yeah, you know, you, you touched on knowledge transfer there and that, that's one of, I think, the best aspects of trips like these and, and many surgeons I've talked to who do global work in various regions of the world. Because I, you know, when we were talking last week and you said you make these trips, I, I think I I asked you, oh, what do you do when you go over there? Is it mostly hydrocephalus? Is, is it a lot of trauma? You go over there and operate for a week. And you said, well, well no, actually, while we're there, we'll, we'll do cases, but mostly we try to help with cases and we try to work with the surgeons who were there. And it, it's a classic teach a man to fish versus give him a fish scenario, right? So. Maybe you could talk a little bit about between your sub-sub-specialty interests and the needs of the population and the places you visit, what are some of the different or more common disease entities that you see? What are the, some of the things you try to work with the local surgeons about that you find are the highest impact or the highest yield for the whole year when you're not there instead of just the period when you can be present? Great questions. Um, I think it's important to say that these are not mission trips. Um, these are really relationship building hmm. and um, knowledge transfer and skill transfer on a sustainable level okay. for building people's knowledge, building people's careers. Um, I go to places where there are practicing neurosurgeons who are there year round. So it's not drop in, do neurosurgery and leave patients with no follow up. Right. Um, I think that would be changing natural history for the worse. But going there and working with local neurosurgeons and seeing where the needs are is uh, a, an important emphasis. And part of that is looking, listening, and learning. So when you're first there to really understand what are the most common diagnoses, what are the challenges that they face, and what is the workflow like? what equipment do they have, what, uh, what are the constraints, um, and really what works well. And working within that ecosystem and looking for ideas or tips or tricks to be able to contribute is, is something that can be very positive upfront. Mm -hmm. It does take a little bit of time to understand that environment before really imposing um, other ideas. What works for us here in the US with lots of resources, a lot of disposables, um, yeah. a, a lot of luxuries that we don't think of may not work in, in developing countries or low resource set, settings like Sub-Saharan Africa. So for instance, we use a lot of disposables here. 
whereas in an operating room in sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of things are reused. They're sterilized and used again and again and again until they break or are completely unusable. So things that we may never think of doing here, like reusing a Fogarty balloon, mm. reusing the bear hugger, uh, reusing bovi pads, reusing bovi tips. These are things that you may need to do to be able to take care of the volume of patients that you see there. Sure. So when, uh, when you look at the needs of the population, a majority of kids actually live in the developing world. So if you look at North America, the percent of the population under the age of 18 is about 30 to 40 percent, depending on where you live. If you look at Sub-Saharan Africa, that number is um, around 50 percent. So where where the children are um, it is actually in the developing world. But when you look at the concentration of neurosurgeons per population or pediatric neurosurgeons per population, the it, it is about one to multiple millions or something in that ballpark depending on how you define the population to be served. Um, especially in pediatric neurosurgery. So um, here there's, um, in the US it's about one to a million or one to two million um, uh, to be able to support a pediatric neurosurgeon's practice. So the need is enormous in the yeah. developing world. So the, the system for training pediatric neurosurgeons is also not very developed in the developing world. So I think that's where we have a responsibility really to think about where that skill transfer and knowledge transfer um, can take place. And now with, with um, communications really being much more um, facile in terms of having WhatsApp, um, uh, you know, the internet, webinars, Zoom, Teams, all sorts of different platforms. Um, that ability to to keep in touch and that ability to have regular um, contact um, and discussions uh, is really much more accessible now. Yeah. So, especially with um, looking at broadband or just phones or Wi-Fi and, and people's access, we're really able to really not have people be in the dark anymore. So that's been something that um, we thought at the beginning of the pandemic we would not be able to travel and, and we would really um, have that relationship erode over time. Right. However, this was um, the opposite. Um, my uh, two closest um, colleagues in Sub-Saharan Africa ended up in practice together at Cure Uganda, uh, a pediatric hospital that has uh, done an enormous amount of work in pediatric neurosurgery and pediatric hydrocephalus, uh, pioneered by Dr. Ben Worf. They have really 
taught the world uh, from that center um, uh, how to use flexible endoscopy to treat hydrocephalus and try to avoid the use of permanent implants such as VP shunts. Hmm. And having that volume of patient population and having Dr. Worf report on his experiences over time really had the world take notice on, on how these outcomes were were much better than, than previously thought. And now that area has become a training ground that specific center has become a training ground for pediatric neurosurgeons around the world to actually go visit and learn these skills and be able to take them back to developing countries or developed countries to their own practices. So for instance, the Hydrocephalus Clinical Research Network in North America has surgeons go to Mbale, Uganda to train uh, in the technique of endoscopic third ventriculostomy with cord plexus cauterization and actually come back to the HCRN sites to be approved or trained surgeons to be able to participate in um, uh, certain series or trials. Mm. So this is a story of reverse innovation um, and really diffusion of the reverse innovation and surgical technique that can really be from the developing world back to the developed world. Mm. And that should really open our minds to, to what global collaboration means. It really is not, say, the global north helping the global south. It should be, how can we do better as surgeons and what can we learn from each other? And really listening to each other's needs. Um, so I, I really look to my experiences with these colleagues and in other countries as things where I feel guilty sometimes because I wonder if I'm really getting more out of it than I'm giving. And um, that's something that I have to continually ask myself, am I, am I doing this for the right reasons? And, and I really hope I am. Um, and that's why it, it's very important to me to have something that is very sustainable, to have something that is very genuine. Uh, where my colleagues and I uh, have this relationship over time and that we're building on, on, uh, on needs, not imagined needs, not on what I think they need. Mm. And here in the pandemic, um, when I first got to Lurie Children's Hospital, um, uh, my colleagues in Uganda, Emmanuel Wigoye and Humphrey Okechi, they said, you know, we're really good at treating hydrocephalus and myelomeningocele now, to the point where I know this because we're seeing kids in follow-up who are now growing up. They are now reaching school age, mm. and they're living longer, but we see that they have functional issues. They have issues that erode their quality of life, like epilepsy and spasticity. And we don't have as many medications at our disposal um, than you do in North America to treat seizures. But we also know that there are some uh, surgical strategies for treating epilepsy, but we really don't have the experience in that. But 
we want to. We want to learn, we want to get better, and we want to de develop this program. Can you help us? Yeah. And I thought, well, that's what I do. I do epilepsy surgery, so sure, um, let's think about um, epilepsy conference. We can actually do this on Zoom. Uh, we have uh, a um, memorandum of understanding in place between our institutions. And, um, and I thought, well, we can just have an epilepsy conference, just like I do here in my local practice, and we can decide on the surgeries to deploy. Uh, my colleagues are awesome surgeons and I have confidence in them that really they could do the epilepsy surgeries. It's really a matter of case selection. And then they asked, well, what do we do with this EEG machine? <laughs> and, and how, how I feel do the we same do... way sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do we do this EEG? And then after we, we get this EEG, how do we interpret it? Who's yeah. going to interpret it? And then, and then actually, who do we operate on? And right. I thought, oh, goodness, this, this may not be that easy. And, and, and I, I am not the person to help you here. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought, wow, we really need a team. And, and this is really something that... Um, I cannot tackle alone, or maybe this is really not a good idea. And um, and actually, at Lurie Children's Hospital, our uh, head of our epilepsy monitoring unit and our head of neurodiagnostics uh, is uh, an EEG tech by training, uh, Eric Padilla. He also has an MBA, and he runs our neurodiagnostic center and runs an EEG tech training program and he's been doing this for almost a decade. And he told me, well, I teach people to do EEGs. We have an accredited program to do this. It's an apprenticeship model. We work with the Neurodiagnostic Society of America. Uh, there is a way to do this, and that's what we do. Actually, our EEG techs are certified uh, EEG instructors. Mm. So when we talked about this more, we realized, well, could we modify this curriculum to be on Zoom as much as possible until we can actually see each other in person again uh, across uh, 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 continents um, and, and through COVID? And when the Neurodiagnostic Society of America heard about this, they said, we have a global initiative and we actually want to help and we want to get involved and we want to donate our online textbooks and our online modules yeah. so that everybody has the chance to learn regardless of ability to purchase uh, these curricula. So they're actually part of the education um, training uh, curriculum are Lurie Children's EEG instructors uh, and Eric Padilla um, made a, a modified curriculum and uh, we got 10 donated um, uh, logins uh, for the online portals and designed a six-month curriculum to teach 10 doctors uh, at this hospital in Uganda to do EEGs uh, to troubleshoot, uh, to read them, and to at least lateralize mm. so that we would be able to 
look at imaging as well and start thinking about case selection together for epilepsy surgery and putting together presentations for epilepsy conference. So what I thought was completely not realistic and not feasible turned out to be facilitated by the normalization of using Zoom during COVID. And this has turned out to be something that that can be global in scale. And, and uh, we just got through our first cohort um, of, of EEG training, and now we're having epilepsy surgery discussions uh, to look to see which children are going to be candidates for epilepsy surgery. Um, and as travel is picking back up, uh, we're actually planning a trip uh, with surgeons, trainees, and EEG techs to visit um, our colleagues in Uganda to actually do um, uh, the surgeries with them and continue on uh, these weekly conferences for continued support for EEG and case selection. Um, also, they have funding to come over uh, to Lurie Children's and spend time with us in Chicago. Uh, the doctors uh, um, uh, who are neurosurgeons, the doctors who are the, the clinical and medical officers, uh, a couple of whom have decided they want to make EEG and neurophysiology their career. Uh, instead of going into surgical residencies. So this has opened up a, a new avenue in terms of what we're doing in global neurosurgery. And, and really there's a lot of hope in terms of how we can help impact health and, and, and the quality of life and, 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 and children's health in that area of the world. Yeah. Can this be scalable over time? Can this be done at other centers? We don't know yet, but this is a, an effort um, that has gained a lot of interest uh, from Northwestern's Institute of Global Health, uh, where um, we've applied for program funding uh, to uh, continue this collaboration. Yeah. So we did not predict any of this would happen. I would not have been able to tell you as I climbed Kilimanjaro that any of this would happen. <laughs> uh, I would not have been able to tell you um, even a few years ago that this would be the direction that this uh, global friendship and global collaboration would take. Yeah. Uh, but I am really hopeful and optimistic that we are building something sustainable together that can really help children around the world. Yeah, I mean, that's that's phenomenal and, and I think deserving of a hearty congratulations with those recent advances on the EEG front, and particularly if, you know, training people well enough that they're changing their career path. Uh, that, that speaks to the quality of the program and the quality of the people on the other end uh, receiving the learning and, and really devoting themselves to it. Um, as we prepare to land this plane, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't keep focusing on uh, the needs, because I, I feel like this conversation is circled around needs, the need of the patients over there, um, the need for additional training once the skills and knowledge you transferred allowed patients to live long enough to have new problems that also needed to be addressed. And so I imagine when you're doing something for 12 years, you get a sense of, well, what do we need to do this more effectively? So how can people listening at any level contribute to the work you're doing and will be doing next, be it financially, be it with their time, be it with their expertise. If someone wanted to get involved, if someone wanted to help in some way, 
how can they do so? I think as a field, we need to evolve. We need to understand how to incorporate global and social responsibility into neurosurgery. And as we look at different models for career development, is it going to be RVU-based? Is it going to be incentivizing only clinical work? Is it asking people to take vacation time, to go to other countries to participate in, in these collaborations? Is it something that we can build into what we believe in as medical institutions and as a field in neurosurgery to be able to say this is a viable career path? You don't have to choose to live in Africa for a decade. You don't have to choose to move your whole family there, or you can. Um, and if you do, how would the field actually support you? And, and how, would, how would that be a, a career path that you can pick that is not considered mainstream or not mainstream, but really something that can be satisfying and sustainable that you feel like you contribute to the world? Mm. And here in, in North America, as I look at um, trainees who are, who are graduating or medical students who are looking uh, at going into the field or even junior faculty who want to make this part of their career, um, I, I look to um, Dr. Rutka as an example. Uh, at the University of Toronto Department of Surgery, uh, he has advocated for global surgery to be a viable academic career path with clear criteria for academic advancement and for making this part of, of somebody's pillars. Uh, yeah. of what they're doing as measures of success and measures of impact. And unless we can decide that as a field, people who are trying to back out time uh, out of practices that are fee-for-service are going to make choices. And, and going abroad is always going to be viewed as something extra or on the side. And I, I've been lucky or unlucky, uh, depending on how you look at it. Uh, I actually started doing all of this because I used my vacation time to go. Mm. Um, and um, as I matured in the field, I'm able to define the meaning of what I do and also define the value proposition of what I bring to an institution and to a program and I've been very lucky at Lurie Children's Hospital to be able to bring this vision of global citizenship to the leadership, and they have jumped right in in terms of supporting the idea that helping children who never even come through the doors of this hospital is well within our mission and vision. Hmm. Unless we embrace that as a field, we are going to struggle with how are we going to be able to to incorporate these themes into um, how we how we build our practices uh, as a uh, as a field for the next generation? Well said. Well, um, you know, Dr. Lamb, the stated topic today was 
getting back to the world and, and while on its face, that was, you know, an, an idea of returning to physical visits and trips after the, the pandemic, I think really it, it more reflects in our conversation, more reflects a shift in, in attention and in, in getting our minds off of just what's happening in our own lives and just what's happening across the street um, and down the road, but, you know, getting back to the world at large and, and thinking about the global picture and, and the patients and the people who live everywhere in the world, not just where we live. So uh, we're very grateful for you coming on today and talking about that. Um, in future episodes, we may still discuss your career before medicine and maybe even a, a travel log of your, your times climbing Kilimanjaro. But today, I guess we'll we'll settle for changing the face of global neurosurgery. So Dr. Sandy Lamb, thank you for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you very much. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.